Hello and welcome to The Sower. My name is James Patterson. I'm president of the Ciceronian Society and also associate professor and chair of politics at Ave Maria University, fellow at the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy, and at the Institute for Human Ecology. Uh, today, we have our guest, uh, Professor Glenn Moots. You're an associate professor of political science at Northwood University. Am I right about this? Uh, full, full professor. Full been... professor. Listen to you. <laughs> it's very important. I get discounts on coffee that way. It, they add up. Well, the tire rotation too. I mean, that's that's ten fifteen bucks right there. Oh, no, um, they're, cut, but, they're cutting that benefit. You know, that's going down the tubes. <laughs> but um, no, no. Uh, uh, yeah, Northwood and I have been there. I am uh, I'm coming up on twenty five years. No, wait. Wait, 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 wait. No, no, wait. Thirty, thirty years if you include part time at Northwood. Right My now, goodness. 30 years, yeah. They're definitely going to name a bench after you. Today is July <laughs> 7th. I forgot to mention today's July 7th, 2023. Uh, it's not uh, January 7th, 2023, when we originally planned on doing this podcast <laughs> months ago. Uh, it has been a nightmare to make this happen. Uh, and we finally made it happen today. We had a number of things go wrong. So if we're a little punchy, uh, it's because the, uh, the things that went wrong included me not turning my headphones on and, uh, and I'm also sick. Uh, Glenn just muted himself. There we go. Uh, <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about uh, a not so funny topic. So maybe that's the other reason why I'm being a little silly, which is the subject of Christian nationalism. Now, Glenn, I muted, this is, I, I muted myself out of deference to others who would prefer that I be muted. Oh, well, I appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, uh, so what do you think of this timeline on the subject of Christian nationalism? Uh, so you have the nomination and election of Donald Trump mm. and, and the realization that 81% of white evangelicals voted for him, the attribution to those white evangelicals by the left that those people were Christian nationalists. I have here uh, Taking Back God for America by Whitehead and Perry, uh, The Power Worshippers mm. by Catherine Stewart, uh, and The Religion of American Greatness by Paul Miller, who I, I know. Um, I don't know the other two uh, uh, authors of the other two books. Uh, and what emerged uh, as a result of this attribution was a kind of appropriation of the term by certain people uh, among uh, conservative Protestants. And that's, uh, for example, what Stephen Wolf did in his book uh, in The Case for Christian Nationalism, which comes out after these books, strangely enough. Uh, mm -hmm. Normally, people would advance an idea and then they'd be criticized for it. But instead, the criticism came first. What had happened here? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think you can go back to 2006, right? Michelle Goldberg's book, Kingdom Coming, uh, The Rise of Christian Nationalism. Um, there was another book whose title escapes me by Ingersoll that I actually reviewed along with 
uh, McVicker's biography of Rush Dooney, which I think was really, really good. If you have listeners who were interested in Christian Reconstruction, I really recommend McVicker's book. So I guess the first thing I'd say is the, the idea of Christian nationalism insofar as academics have been writing pieces, what I would call alarmist and not very good academic pieces about it, has been around before Trump. Um, Mark Hall, uh, who you know, um, at George Fox, and I think he's going to be at Regent now. He's going to have some affiliation with both Regent University in Virginia. Mark has done some good work on this you know, long-standing, um, almost 20-year concern about Christian nationalism. But to your question about Donald Trump, um, what do you think? What do you think changed? Do you think the first the first shot on this was fired by the left or by the right? It's just that the term itself was new to me. Uh, I remember people used to refer to it as uh, Christian fundamentalism. That was uh, partly a self-identifier, but when it was used by critics, it was also meant to kind of remind the listener of Islamic fundamentalism during Mm -hmm. the 1970s. Uh, And that was sort of during the first wave of opposition to uh, the conservative Protestantism being politically mobilized first under Falwell and then under Robertson and the Christian coalition. So the, the moniker of Christian nationalism I thought was uh, not necessarily new, but it was uh, new in its prominence. Yeah, I think, I, I think that's right. I think the old, the old, uh, the old concern, if, if I'm thinking back to Ingersoll's book, was worrying about things like Vision Forum kids running around in George Washington costumes, people who believed in you know a six-day, twenty-four-hour day creation, like um, you know Ken Ham and things like that. And so, premillennial dispensationalism, apocalypticism, stuff like that. Well, in Christian Reconstruction, yeah. So, so that was that all was thrown into a big basket called dominionism, right? Right. And and so okay, so after Trump, what you get, especially insofar as evangelicals were being miscast as being such diehard Trump supporters, and my understanding is that they really were not that supportive of Trump in the primaries, but did line up behind him in sixteen. Is that right? That's right. In fact, Tim Carney at AEI does some really great work on this, where the people who were most enthusiastic earliest for Trump were the unchurched. And you had uh, a lot of real misgivings among uh, very churched Protestants, like the Dutch Reformed in Western Michigan were very reluctant to get on board until the, the general election. Yeah, right. So I think I, I think I I think that's where I remember that from is is Carney's book too. Although I think I probably saw it a couple other places. So so you had this mischaracterization of the evangelical support, and you had the 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 kind of uh, loosey goosey definition of what an evangelical was. Right. So you had people who identified themselves as Christians, but when you came down to things like regular church attendance, church membership, 
you know, interest in the sacraments, you know, you really get into the weeds on what constitutes uh, devote, you know, devotion or identification, right? It, it gets uh, it gets increasingly complicated. So, and of course, there I think was just this propensity to focus on the the strangest, oddest, you know, um, the snake handlers, if you will, among among the evangelicals, so that they would look even more radical and crazy and irrational. So, was I? I mean, I I don't think Trump was ever really interested, right, in in Christianity. He was so new to pro life that he wound up saying things that, you know, what I would consider to be uh, the majority of pro lifers did not agree with, right, in terms of some of the positions that he started to take. Right, like the arresting of a woman who has an abortion. Right. Right. Yeah, that's are, that's a non-starter on the right and among uh, pro-lifers. Well, among most, I mean, there are some who do, uh, and and you know, we don't need to get into particulars on that. But it just, it it, it I don't see, and I did not see among the people that Trump appointed, I did not see, I I just I didn't understand why or I don't understand why, because Trump was elected, uh, everybody had to go, you know, DEFCON, is it DEFCON 1 or DEFCON 5? DEFCON 1 is the worst, right? That's Sounds bad. All the DEFCOMs okay. sound bad. I'll just be honest. Okay, I, we'll just I'm say... I'm not sure what their, the rank is. We'll, we'll, we'll just say, you know, going DEFCON and, uh, about Christian nationalism because Trump was elected, right? What DEFCOM is finding cocaine near the Situation Room, Clint? <laughs> Uh, that's DEFCON H. DEFCON. <laughs> what Def- on earth could H stand? Anyway, this, by the, you know, people will be listening to this uh, a year from now and have no idea what we're talking about. I, I know uh, I feel better that the Secret Service can't possibly figure out where that came from. It is the most surveilled building <laughs> in the world, and somehow we can't find who put a giant bag of cocaine. It, okay, this anyway. is... Uh, this is definitely appropriate for the Ciceroni Society. Actually, this is 100% what the Ciceroni Society is like if you go to the meetings. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but So uh, how about this as a kind of a periodization of sort of left, center-left uh, interpretations of Christian right? You have kind of the Elmer Gantry phase of Falwell to Robertson. And then you have the sort of compassionate, conservative, hypocritical, psychotic soccer mom uh, during the winsome days of like Rick Warren, purpose driven uh, uh, evangelicalism up until uh, Trump. And then it's the uh, middle aged man with a goatee and wraparound Oakley's driving a large truck. uh, And it's the drunk uncle at the Thanksgiving dinner who talks about QAnon. That's sort of like the the periodization, right? I think you've offered uh, a much more memeable parallel to Aaron Wren's <laughs> positive, neutral, negative world. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I see that. I mean, he has to have a beard, but he does. Uh, I think, um, and uh, maybe one of those uh, distaste, you know, uh, inappropriate flags. But yeah, yeah. Definitely has a Punisher sticker. Um, so, uh, the uh, what is Christian nationalism now, right? So when it was like this attributed feature, um, uh, it was one thing. 
Um, now it's it's a there's an attempt to actually form a coherent uh, um, uh, sort of message behind it, right? I'll tell you what what's what what is what's made it interesting to me, but I don't know. I don't know how representative I am. I mean, this is one of the problems of social media, mainstream media, um, insofar as both have become an echo chamber. It's really hard to get a sense of, you know, who thinks what. So, you know, uh, you'd, you'd mentioned some of the books that that uh, have been published uh, expressing concern, uh, you know, in some cases, real pants on fire about Christian nationalism and really not not very good in terms of uh, in terms of defining what it is or what why people should be concerned about it etc but glenn uh, taking yeah. america back for god won the 2021 distinguished award from the society for the scientific study of religion so i'm not sure why you're being such a sad angry man about that <laughs> well <laughs> i stand corrected <laughs> the, when when would they ever side with very thinly veiled partisan and ideological research. When I get That's off not sh- scientific. That would not be the scientific study of religion, but this clearly says that it is right here on the back of this book. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you just said it all. And, and any, anybody who's ever been around, you know, APSA or a host of other American Political Science Association for the for those who aren't in the know. Yeah, no, no, you know, just how politicized it is. And we don't even have to get into the way in which all the professions are increasingly politicized. But um, what 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 was interesting to me, like what is interesting to me about Stephen's book? Um, you know, Stephen Wolf's book, uh, The Case for Christian Nationalism. Right, right. Yeah. And I, I've known Stephen a while. He went through LSU's doctoral program as I did, although years apart, um, is insofar as Stephen is recovering elements of magisterial Protestantism, and we can talk about that in a second, it's, it's interesting to me. Um, that's the thing that's most interesting to me, and I think, I think that that will give whatever this movement is something worth talking about. Implementation in politics always comes down to prudence, but it will certainly give us a good place to start and something to talk around. Um, and that's really what's most interesting to me. So, for example, the uh, Isker Torba book or whatever it is, I, I just haven't paid any attention to it because I don't think I don't think those guys know anything about it. Um, there's probably some of it, like I understand that book is still running on some of the reconstructionist fumes like, uh, you know, some theonomy or or, or things like that. And and we can talk about Christian reconstruction too, if you want to. But I think increasingly uh, whatever Christian nationalism is, and I know like Brad Littlejohn has talked about um, thinking of it more, not as nationalism, but as a, a commonwealth project, a discussion about what a commonwealth is, what the common good is, what the purpose of politics is, which I think is important. Um, insofar as it's a recovery, and I don't mean a recovery like we just do it, just do what they did, but insofar as it's a recovery, which is the start of a conversation 
around magisterial Protestantism, that I think is probably the new turn in Christian nationalism, at least as far as I'm concerned, or what I'm most interested in. How's that? Uh, that's fine. Uh, and uh, let's start with uh, that subject of magisterial Protestantism before we get into Stephen's book. We don't have to spend the entire pod- rest of the podcast talking about Stephen's book, but there's a few no, things no. in it wanted to pose. But before we get into it, what is this recovery of magisterial Protestantism? Uh, for those who don't know or may have heard about it and are uncertain about what it is, this has been something that's been afoot for a while, and you've been at the center of uh, doing this, if, I, you know, if I'm any judge as an outsider. Magisterial Protestantism, which sounds like a bunch of Protestants who are uh, have like a, a gold leaf edge to them, um, and they drink golden uh, white leaf edge. <laughs> uh, magisterial simply means that the reforming efforts of the magisterial Protestants included the civil magistrate. So magistrate, magisterial. So. It, to to this is not really a big oversimplification. There's a little bit of a simplification, but um, so in the Reformation, uh, you had two groups of Protestants. You had Protestants who did not want to engage the civil magistrate and were in fact quite scandalized by the thought of it. And those are typically lumped under the idea of the Anabaptists, right? The the group called the Anabaptists. And then it, when you think about Lutherans, Anglicans, Presbyterians, to some degree Congregationalists, at least the American ones, you're talking about magisterial Protestants. Uh, so the magistrate was going to, carry, going to help carry forward the work of the Reformation. And don't forget, too, that rejecting the authority of Rome meant that you had created something of a vacuum, uh, not only because Rome had asserted authority over the civil magistrate, but also Rome was where you found the head or the seat of the church. So if you reject that authority, you've got a pretty big authority vacuum. And that it, I think it's I think it's understandable and even biblical to have a role for the civil magistrate. Yeah, so we have here... Um, since you're talking about the magistrate, we have here this discussion in Wolf's book of the Christian prince. I'll just read a little bit of it. Um, uh, For those who have the book, it's on page 292. When we designate any prince as a Christian prince, we are not simply referring to his religion, nor are we saying that his office is fundamentally of grace, as if Christian prince is entirely a creation of the gospel, The Christian prince occupies the natural office of civil ruler, is not fundamentally a new office, though the office is Christianized by his service to Christ. The Christian prince retains everything pertaining to the office of civil ruler, considered generically. We can then come to this definition. The Christian prince is a civil ruler as divinely ordained in nature who possesses and uses both civil and interpersonal to uh, uses powers both civil and interpersonal to order his people to commodious temporal life and to the eternal life in Christ. Uh, so is this where magisterial Protestants land, or is this a merely Wolf's interpretation? Can we just talk about the prose for a second? <laughs> you, if you like. <laughs> I, I know people who are really put off by that, but if you spend your time 
in the early stuff, which Stephen has done more than, I don't know, I don't want to, I don't want to put a hard number on it, but the vast majority, I don't want to say all, but the vast majority of people who are, who are talking, well, certainly they're talking about Christian nationalism, and he's probably gone through more of those sources on politics than certainly certainly than almost all American political theorists, not the Brits. The Brits have been doing work on this for years. But that prose is, is just reflects, I think, how deeply Stephen is in those sources. So, Commodious is definitely oh, uh, not a commonly used word unless you are in the sources. Right, and he uses, he uses commodious uh, a lot. Uh, I, <laughs> you know... It, so I guess I guess I'm, I'm I'm answering your question, which is uh, I think Stephen always knows what's in the magisterial Protestants. I think he also knows when he departs from it, and I think I think to Stephen's credit, he's also trying to distill a lot. You know, people have complained about the length of the book, but I think he's actually done a really good job in some places of distilling what would otherwise be a much, much larger book. Um, the idea of of the Christian magistrate. So I want I want to be careful. I, I don't want to endorse the Christian prince because I think that the weakest part of Stephen's book, and he he acknowledged this in a Twitter post, is that I I don't think he's that interested in institutions what I would call constitutionalism. In other words, building the kind of mouse maze where when you get to the end of it, based on how you've allocated power and um, how you understand the use of law and things like that, you you get a better outcome. Um, I don't think he's that interested in it. And so I think I think in his book and among some people who have patted him on the back, and we won't, we won't go into naming names on that, um, they want a prince, they want a single ruler in the model of the strong monarch, let's, let's just call it the Stuart monarchy, um, although they probably wouldn't like that association. But uh, <laughs> We know where that goes, right? Well, I mean, James <laughs> I and Charles I, I mean, you know, if you read what they said, they basically said, you know, the prince is essentially above the law, though he is certainly able to put himself under it if he wants to. Um, that kind of thing, you know, gives me hives. Uh, you know, I don't care for that. But the idea of the, the Christian magistrate um, as someone whose office is from God, who does not simply have a responsibility to be a night watchman, but actually has a kind of robust responsibility for both the, the um, spiritual and physical uh, well-being of the citizens um, as well as a responsibility to provide some, and this is the part where people are going to, you know, just uh, uh, probably lose it, uh, oversight or responsibility for the church. Now, if, if you've read, again, if you've read the sources on this, like if you read Althusius, this is not what people think it is. This is not that the civil magistrate is the head of the church, and we don't have to get into the weeds and enthusiasts or whatever, but but I'll say this and I'll and I'll turn it back to you, which is the exact relationship of civil and ecclesiastical authority was you know kind of hashed and rehashed over a long period of time, uh, 
And it's not just as simple as the one is autonomous or one rules over the other, et cetera. But that's, that gets pretty complicated. And, and the magisterials don't always agree on it. And they don't always implement it the same way. So in 182, uh, Wolf says the classical Protestant position is that civil authorities ought to order outward goods to this highest good, or put differently, to establish and maintain the best possible outward conditions for people to acquire spiritual good, that's being the highest good. Their objects of action are things circa sacra, around sacred things. This can include the funding of church construction, ministerial and seminary financial support, the suppression of public blasphemy, heresy, and impious profanation, obligating Sabbath observance, and other things. I like the end other things. Yeah, I think uh, the, that's right. That's right. <laughs> the extent and nature of such policies will vary with circumstances. In accepting these limitations, civil authorities recognize a distinction or separation of church and state. The instituted church is the God-ordained order that administers spiritual things for the good of the soul. It offers the highest good, having the office of the word. It wields the spiritual sword to change hearts for eternal life. Civil authorities do not have this sword. Nevertheless, civil authorities can serve the body politic by making it outwardly fit for receiving what is good for the soul. Yeah, that's right. Is that Wolf, or is that what you think is a kind of comprehensive vision of magisterial Protestantism? I think that's actually a pretty good summary of magisterial Protestantism. So we've seen uh, some degree of those things in the history of the United States. A lot of people today probably are surprised to hear someone make recommendations like this. It sounds very theocratic, uh, but... It's not that long ago where you had things like uh, uh, Sunday closure laws, and you certainly in some states still have blue laws for the purchase of alcohol, um, and you had uh, versions of Sabbath laws, and uh, there was also uh, you know moral moral laws, laws about uh, what you could not do in public, uh, and of course we had church establishments until 1833. Uh, so, uh, how, how untoward, how un-American is this? Uh, you know, if you're a critic of Christian nationalism, this will sound to you as like an alien ideology seeking to usurp the rights of people, but, uh, is it really that foreign? A uh, short answer is no. And I guess the, the, the first thing I'll point to a couple things that I would say in response to that, uh, uh well, pr- as a preliminary, I'll just say, I understand why people feel this way. So I think the next question is whether they're willing to kind of get over the initial shock or reaction to that. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of the study which was discussed. It's been in The Economist, uh, Christian Post, uh, Breakpoint, which I think is Chuck Holston's organization. You know, they've been talking about this now since the end of last year, which is a study about deaths of despair that also included um, blue laws. And we'll just put under the heading of blue laws, uh, laws having to do with the Sabbath. So if, for example, you believed that church attendance is a salutary thing, it's an important part of human flourishing, then you can kind of put 
that on a spectrum. And at the one spectrum, you could have the most extreme position, which is that you try to force confessions of faith out of people. Um, I'm not aware of any, any Protestants who thought that was a good idea. I've heard Protestants say that Roman Catholics were at one time willing to do that. I'll let you speak to that. I'm not going to presume to know anything about that. But at the other end, you could simply have something like a law which says you can't open until noon. That doesn't make anybody do anything. It just makes it, it just gives them fewer excuses not to go to church. Does that make sense? Right. Uh, that is uh, how I've understood it. Um, uh, what's funny is that during a extended period when Catholics were trying to more or less prove themselves as good patriots, they also supported uh, things like closure laws. And this is uh, one of the things that often surprises people is they were also supportive of temperance, uh, which you know, runs contrary to many of the reputations of Catholics in the United <laughs> States. <laughs> there were, the Knights of Columbus were uh, advocates for temperance. Um, so, so this is not all that uncommon, uh, but all the same, there's still a lot of displeasure about uh, Stephen Wolf's project, leaving out the like the obvious problems that people on the left or center left are going to have with any kind of favorable legislation toward church attendance. Uh, what are some of the criticisms that are among those who would normally be sympathetic to uh, Stephen's project? Of the book or of Stephen's... Uh, the book and the project, like um, his, his sort of broader oeuvre. So what I what I appreciate about Stevens, but I'm I'm not very good at answering your questions right away. Am I? Uh, what I what I like about Stevens' book is, for example, that passage you just read, which I think is a good summary of how Magisterial Protestants understood the magistrate. But like I said, there are elements of that chapter on the Christian Prince, and I don't have the book in front of me, but. Um, uh, where I think, again, he want, what he's asking for is some kind of strong executive, I would say too strong, um, that can, can start to look like, uh, well, it can start to look like a fascist articulation of the state, the kind of all-encompassing nature of the state, or the idea of the strong personality leading the people who only find their their meaning as members of the state, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that's not magisterial Protestantism, and I'm not saying Stephen is a fascist, but if one is not, in my opinion, more careful about addressing questions of institutions, their relationship to one another, the rule of law, constitutionalism, et cetera, it can sure look that way. And... Um, I think that's a weakness in his project. And I've said as much in, in a review. This isn't anything new or, or, I hope, scandalous. This is something that I said clearly in my review of the book at Public Discourse. Yeah, so Josh Abatoy, he's that American reformer, Claremont, Lincoln Fellow. You know, he, he more or less drilled down on this particular vision 
of the uh, of the Christian Prince by saying on, uh, on Twitter, uh, we've referred to that social media site a couple times. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that. But he said, basically, America is going to need a Protestant Franco. Now, I want to mention, first of all, that if you were to tell Franco that we need a Protestant Franco, he would absolutely <laughs> lose his mind. <laughs> given given uh, Franco's uh, thoroughgoing public Christianity, uh, Catholicism, uh, and, uh, you know, um, which was uh, sufficiently brain-poisoned that uh, he was, you know, doing all sorts of terrible things to even dissenting Catholic priests uh, uh, that... Uh, you know, the idea that uh, we were going to have a Protestant version of him in the United States would, would uh, appall him. Uh, but uh, this this meth- this sort of uh, uh, declaration for the need of a extra-constitutional executive leader to centralize the national government seems to be where a lot of people who are interested in Stevens' project want to take it. Uh, and... Uh, uh, to your point about institutions, this really does seem to indicate an indifference or even ignorance of how institutions work. Uh, it's worth noting that Protestant uh, Franco, if he were to have the same conclusion as a Catholic Franco did, it would mean the impoverishment of the country, the alignment of the country with uh, <laughs> Nazi Germany, uh, and then uh, quickly re, you know, pivoting to the Allies in 1944 when things seemed to be going the other direction, uh, marginalization of the country in uh, the international community for decades, uh, economic deterioration well behind the rest of Western Europe, uh, and then, uh, unfortunately, the Protestant Franco will die of an aggravated abscess and his uh, uh, his arse, excuse me, uh, <laughs> from sitting too long on a couch watching football. So, uh, is this is this really like a serious project? I think I think what you just were angling for there was to get on the writing staff for the new Indian Jones, uh. <laughs> which 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 I which I saw by the way. It, it, and I, I thought it was good, but anyway, we got to politicize you, everything. So, did you see to... the joke about how uh, the most realistic part of the movie was that an eighty-year-old professor wouldn't retire? <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's outstanding. Um, I know, I know. He's, instead of taking the buyout, he's going to go find some dial. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I I would simply address this from the magisterials, and. You know, the interest, one of the interesting things about what gave, what, what made the magisterials, especially the Reformed, or what sometimes are called Calvinistic, I don't think that's, I think Reform's a better label than Calvinistic, but um, what, what makes them so prolific is they have to kind of sort out these questions of the relationship of Henry VIII to Rome. That's uh, Tyndale's Obedience of a Christian Man, which is, which is not, not read properly. Um, that's not anything new or unique, but um, that's been said before, and I just went through that again with classes this semester. Uh, and then you have the Marian Exile, and you have Protestants going to the continent, 
and having to sort through constitutional questions about how much authority the monarch should have and who the monarch is accountable to. And you already had all of this complicated medieval constitutionalism that the Protestants inherited. So what I don't understand is why we would be excited about centralizing authority when none of the people that at the same time were saying were, are such good and important guides, such meat right and salutary guides for us to think about politics anew, why we would say, for example, well, these guys understood the role of Sabbath laws, but then turn around and say, let's centralize authority. And then you say, well, actually, the magisterial Protestants didn't like that. So to me, uh, I guess all I can say is I think it's a selective reading of the, of the magisterial Protestants, and I would prefer to read them consistently and have a conversation around everything that they're saying. I don't just want to say, well, they like blue laws, so, so do I, but they like constitutionalism, but we don't. What we really need is someone who can, on the strength of, of their personality or their religious devotion or you know, some kind of aggregation of powers inconsistent with Anglo-American constitutionalism, and I don't say that like it's something separate from Protestantism. I say it is something that was very woven into Protestantism, and John Adams said as much when he cited both the Vindicia Contra Chirinos and, and John Ponnet's uh, work on politics that he wrote in exile uh, from Mary. Um, stop me if I'm uh, going on too long This here. is good. Uh, I'm very glad that you were saying what you're saying. This is uh, you know, I don't see how you can, you can have it both ways. It seems to me that if you're going to take the... If you're going to say that the, that the, the magisterial Protestants took the... Uh, sort of kind of holistic view of human uh, of human good and human flourishing, and therefore they encourage Sabbath laws that part of that holistic view includes uh, limits on power. Um, so you know you just you're just going to have to work it out. Now if it if it doesn't work out, then you just have to do what's prudent. And, and somebody says to me, well, you know, and this is one of the problems, too, is that somebody will say to me, because, you know, I'm on record as either defending uh, a Christian uh, people who are Christian nationals, like Stephen. I just went to bat. Uh, not, not, I, I really had a bigger point than, than going to bat for Stephen. But, um, but I've, I've gone to bat for Stephen on occasion. Um, I've also been critical of him. Um, and I have a, a NatCon talk, which is kind of tongue-in-cheek, entitled How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Christian Nationalism. It was adapted at, at Long Liberty, uh, if somebody wants to read it. Um, but, you know, to me, the important thing is as we start and talk around the magisterial Protestants, and it means that we do it, um, to, you know, without, without cherry-picking them. How's that? I think that's right. 